Hello, and welcome to the fifth case conference in the 2016-2017 CCB MJHS Palliative Care in the Patient-Centered Medical Home Case Discussion Series. Our case today is entitled, A 62-Year-Old Man with Chronic Kidney Disease, Insomnia, and Dysthymia. My name is Dr. Mara Lugasi, and I have no disclosures to make today. So our case today focuses on a 62-year-old man with a, with a history of advanced kidney disease and a chief complaint of insomnia and a sensation of a worsening feeling of being sick. And as we go through this case, our goal is to appreciate two aspects. One, that the conservative care of patients with advanced kidney disease must address a wide range of troubling symptoms to patients, and two, that it is an evidence-based combination therapy that is really key to optimal palliative care in chronic kidney disease. In terms of the specifics of our case on further taking of the history of present illness, it's shown that this patient has a long-standing history of chronic kidney disease, non-insulin-dependent diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, neuropathy, as well as obesity. This patient has been disabled for more than five years, but was relatively stable until around seven, several months ago. And due to his new symptoms, he requested an earlier appointment and is now seeking help with severe insomnia, as well as a general feeling of sickness with low energy and no motivation. Further review of the present illness shows that his insomnia came on gradually but has now worsened to a nightly pattern of prolonged sleep latency. So it reportedly takes him around two hours before he falls asleep. And in addition to this, he's starting to have some early morning awakenings. He denies any specific cause that he can think of for the insomnia, but states that he feels restless when he's trying to get to sleep. In addition, every second or third night, his sleep is also impaired by periods of feeling itchy, particularly in his arms. And to manage this itchiness and insomnia, he's tried over-the-counter diphenhydramine as well as melatonin without really any significant benefit. The patient reports that his sleeplessness has contributed to feeling sick and tired during the day. And when he's asked, there are, there are other factors as well. He describes that he has a very poor mood. He's characterized by irritability and an inability to enjoy his usual activities. He describes that he's had very poor functioning overall recently, and he also notes that his appetite has worsened from previously. Further review of the history shows that he hasn't had any changes in his medications. He hasn't tried any new over-the-counter drugs. He hasn't had any changes in his diet, recent travel or exposures, and he denies fever, night sweats, swelling, or any sort of weight changes. And aside from the changes in mood and level of motivation, he denies any difficulty in terms of thinking or memory changes. Review of his medical records show that he's being followed by both a cardiologist and a nephrologist in the past six months. And both of their notes indicate that he's had stable cardiac and renal disease during this time. His medical record also shows that he had a sleep study around four years ago during uh, he, when he developed insomnia during a depressive episode, and the workup from the sleep apnea study was negative. 
The patient's past medical history shows that he has a long-standing history of non-insulin-dependent diabetes, as well as hypertension and obesity. His BMI is elevated at 40. His diabetes and hypertension have been well controlled for the past few years, and he has had some complications, though, in addition to nephropathy, he has developed vascular disease as well as peripheral neuropathy. In addition, the patient has a severe vasculopathy related to the diabetes. He has an extensive history of cardiac disease. He has had two prior myocardial infarctions, one 15 years ago and five years ago, and then had a stent placed about a year ago. His ejection fraction is at 55%. He also has fairly extensive peripheral vascular disease. He underwent a balloon angioplasty for a fempop arterial disease three years ago. And about a year ago, he had a toe amputated for gangrene related to this peripheral vascular disease. In addition, the patient does have a notable history of peripheral neuropathy. Prior exams have demonstrated impaired proprioception contributing to anataxic gait as well as mild burning paresthesias to his mid-cap bilaterally. In terms of the patient's history of his chronic kidney disease, he has had his estimated glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, which has declined over the past 15 years. Three years ago, his GFR became less than 40, and dialysis at this point was at first discussed with his nephrologist as well as his primary care doctor. At this point, the patient strongly felt that he wanted to delay dialysis as long as was possible. And in the intervening time, his GFR has varied between around 30 and 40 over the past three years. In addition to this reduction in his GFR, the patient has developed both anemia and hyperphosphatremia that have required ongoing treatment. The patient's other past medical history is notable for hyperuricemia with no gouty attacks. He did, as mentioned before, have an episode of moderate depression around four years ago, which resolved after sertraline was added to the rest of his medication regimen. In terms of the patient's current medications, he's on metoprolol, amlodipine, hydrochlorothiazide, and losartan. He takes atorvastatin. He's on allopurinol for his diabetes. He's maintained on a regimen of metformin and repaglinide. He also, for his cardiovascular disease, his aspirin. And his hyperphosphatemia and uh, anemia related to his renal failure are managed with calcium acetate and erythropoietin, respectively. The patient's social history is notable for the fact that he is bilingual in English and Spanish. He's been married for 18 years. He has two involved sons who live nearby, and he has an overall supportive relationship with his family. He's currently on disability while his wife works full-time as a licensed practical nurse, and he notes himself as an observant Catholic. The patient, in terms of a substance history, has a 25-pack year of tobacco use. He did quit smoking, however, around 25 years ago. He has no prior or current use of alcohol, any other drugs, and no problems noted with prescription drug use. In terms of advanced care planning, the patient has completed previously a healthcare proxy form and has named his wife as his healthcare agent. Patient's family history is notable for his mother who died of lung cancer at age 72. His father had a history of early onset Alzheimer's disease and died of a myocardial infarction 
at age 61, and the patient's brother is 65 years old and has a history of both a stroke and peripheral vascular disease. On review of systems, the patient notes that he has dyspnea with moderate activity, he has an unsteady gait, as well as some low back pain, which occurs with minimal activity. The patient's physical exam is notable for the fact that he's mildly hypertensive with a blood pressure of 145 over 90, pulse of 96. His BMI is elevated uh, to 41, and accordingly, he has an obese body habitus. On exam of his skin, he's noted to have excoriations along both arms and thighs. He has trophic changes and skin thickening from the mid-cap down. He has a moderate edema in his extremities, and his cardiac exam is notable for a laterally displaced PMI, as well as an S3 gallop. His pulmonary exam shows a few faint bivasal clap crackles, although no respiratory distress. And his neurologic exam is notable for some minimal asteresis. He has diminished light touch sensation below the mid-calf and diminished proprioception in the toes. His finger-to-nose test is normal, but his gait is wide-based and unsteady. He has absent deep tendon reflexes. So in summary, we have a patient with a cheek complaint of insomnia and a worsening feeling of being sick in the context of chronic kidney disease. And his history reveals a constellation of possibly related symptoms, including insomnia, dysthymia, pruritus, restlessness, as well as poor appetite. So when we're thinking about this case, the first thing that we want to think about is how to develop or to structure our differential diagnosis. And this is sort of an example of a case where you can think of either a lumping or splitting the differential diagnosis. And one way to approach it would be to think, is there some sort of unifying diagnosis that could explain all of these symptoms that are occurring? Or is this a case where we need to take each symptom individually and look and potentially address a separate cause. So in this particular case, there really are two potential unifying diagnoses that we consider. One would be, does the patient have a worsening kidney disease that is explaining his restlessness and his itching and his insomnia and potentially his changes in mood? Or could some of these changes, in fact, be due to a reemergence of his prior depressive disorder? Or are we really dealing with two diagnoses potentially contributing uh, to these underlying symptoms. Or separately, do we need to now think of another diagnosis which might explain at this point this constellation of symptoms? So before we move ahead, let's think of what would be the next step for this patient. And if we ask ourselves this, which of the following next steps is best? Would it be A, should we at this point add zolpidem 5 milligrams nightly to this patient's medication regimen? Should we B, add sertraline 25 milligrams and refer the patient for psychiatric consultation? Or C, should we obtain repeated laboratory screening to clarify his diagnosis? So the answer that we are looking for in this case would be C, obtain repeat laboratory screening to clarify his diagnosis. Certainly in this case when we're thinking about is this depression or is this renal failure, one of the things we really want to look at specifically is 
what is the status of his renal failure at this point, and is this contributing to these symptoms? So really, our first step before we add additional medications or other interventions would really be, as is always an effective process when managing his symptoms, to try to think about what the root cause is. So given this, the patient is asked to obtain some lab results and return in a few days. So he gets this done, and at this point, his labs reveal that he has a now an estimated GFR of 25. His creatinine at this point is elevated to 8.2. He has a hemoglobin of 10.7 and a hemoglobin A1C of 7%. So at this point, we can think, based on the decrease in the GFR and the elevated creatinine that the diagnosis of worsening chronic kidney disease, possibly complicated by depression, could be a unifying diagnosis to explain this patient's complaints. So given these changes in his renal function, he is referred to as nephrologist for reevaluation. So he goes to his nephrologist, and the nephrologist repeats the lab testing, orders some urine tests, and performs a renal ultrasound, and then the note from the nephrologist, which is sent back to the PMD, indicates that the patient's chronic kidney disease has likely worsened to stage four. Unfortunately, there's no treatable acute onchronic process that could potentially be managed or reversed at this point to improve the patient's renal function. And there's an indication in the nephrologist's note that dialysis has been discussed, and the decision at this point has been made by the patient to continue conservative management for the time being. The nephrologist notes that the patient will return to his primary care doctor for ongoing treatment of his current problems. And then the patient is instructed to follow up with his neurologist, nephrologist in two months. So the patient is now back in the PMD's office seeking help again for his insomnia and now a worsening feeling of being sick. And at this point, he describes a combination of dysphonia, itchiness, restlessness, and poor appetite, the same symptoms that he had before, but perhaps escalating. So let's talk a little bit about insomnia in chronic kidney disease, which is really one of the patient's significant uh, presenting complaints. So it's quite common, the prevalence in chronic kidney disease is a wide range, but on the order of 20 to 70 percent. And insomnia is associated frequently in chronic kidney disease with comorbidities of pain, depression, and itch. It can be underreported, but it's really important to think about and manage because in particular insomnia is frequently associated with a poor quality of life. So what can we do for insomnia in chronic kidney disease? Well, we can think about a wide range, range of treatments. We can first and foremost try to manage and screen for and treat any contributing factors, which might be worsening the insomnia. We can introduce some non-pharmacologic strategies, and if these are not effective, we can also introduce pharmacotherapy as well. So given this, we jump to our next question now, and which of the following problems might be contributing to the patient's insomnia? Could it be A, depression, B, pruritus, C, restless leg syndrome, A and B, or all of the above? So that the answer that we are looking for is E, all of the above. And really all of these symptoms are things that occur frequently in chronic kidney disease, and all of them, depression, pruritus, and restless leg syndrome, could be contributing to the patient's insomnia, so we want to think about and address each of them as well.
So in terms of managing chronic kidney disease and insomnia with chronic kidney disease, we can first think about what type of non-pharmacologic strategies we can implement. Now certainly education about sleep hygiene practices can be very effective. Um, and this is often an important first step for any type of insomnia, but particularly with chronic kidney disease. Um, we also can think about introducing some cognitive behavioral therapies. And there's a wide variety of interventions. Some of these could include relaxation training, uh, imagery, as well as mindfulness training. And all of these can be very beneficial because they can help, but at the same time, they really have uh, limited to you no know, side effects associated with them in the way that pharmacotherapy could. In terms of pharmacotherapy, it's an important intervention. Unfortunately, there's very few studies that look very specifically at insomnia and chronic kidney disease. In general, the medications that we typically use for insomnia require no dose adjustments uh, in renal failure, which is important to note because certainly many medications do require dose adjustments. And there's a few different drug categories that we consider. First, there are non-benzodiazepine benzodiazepine receptor agonists. And these would be medications such as Zolpidem, Zeliplon, or Zoplaquon. Um, there are also benzodiazepine receptor agonists, and these would be benzodiazepines such as lorazepam. Um, in addition to these sort of medications, which are specifically for sleep or anti-anxiety, there are antidepressants, which tend to have more sedating properties. And if they are dosed at night, um, one can also harness the effects of them to help with insomnia. And typical medications in this category would be trazodone, mirtazapine, or doxepin. In addition, melatonin agonists, including remelatron, can help with insomnia as well. So although in this particular patient's case there were treatable contributing factors due to the degree of distress that the patient was experiencing from the insomnia, at this point, the primary care doctor decides to focus specifically on the insomnia while treating the others as well. So the primary care doctor first asks the patient to keep a sleep diary and instructs the patient in sleep hygiene measures, including some recommendations such as not consuming caffeine after midday, no napping during the day, um, having some gentle mobilization exercises in the early evening, right? not right before bedtime, but in the early evening, which can help with sleep as well. And advising the patient to go to bed when he's sleepy, to leave the bed if he is awake for more than 30 minutes, so he's not lying in bed for a long time, feeling anxious about not falling asleep, which is then presenting, worsening his insomnia and getting into a vicious cycle. And he's also advised to have a very consistent sleep schedule so that he sets his alarm at the same time every day despite when he went to sleep the night before. Thinking a little bit about some of the pharmacotherapy in this case, we jump to our next question. Which of the following drugs would be a reasonable choice as a child for insomnia? Would it be A, trazodone or mirtazapine because the patient might benefit from the antidepressant effect? Would it be B, zolpidem or zalapron because they are most commonly used? Would it be C, diphenhydramine because the patient is also itchy, would it be A and B, or would it be all of the above? So
So the appropriate answer here would be A and B. Um, certainly, in this case, given that the patient does have uh, significant depressive symptoms, one of the things that we might consider would be trazodone or mirtazapine because we could, number one, treat his depressive symptoms as well as uh, his insomnia at the same time. We would, of course, want to make sure that we were dosing these medications, particularly at night, so he's not more sedated during the day and then not sleeping effectively at night. So the timing is important here. Um, we could also consider use of Zolpidem or Zalpon because these are commonly used medications and we have sort of a best sense of the effects that they might have uh, on his sleep patterns. Generally, we would avoid diphenhydramine. Um, it's not as effective for sleep as some of these other medications and it has more side effects. And in particular, for the type of uh, itching associated with renal failure, it's not particularly effective for that. We'll discuss this a little bit more in a minute. So in keeping with this, the patient is given 15 milligrams of trazodone nightly with instructions to double the dose if sleep is needed. He then returns to his primary care doctor's office in two weeks reporting that he did double it and that the 100 milligram dose provided some relief and he's asking at this point whether he can actually increase the dose further. He reports that he's tolerating the drug well, but he also notes at this point that both his itching and his restlessness are worse. His mood is unchanged at this point. So given that his mood is unchanged and he's really having just partial benefit, he's advised to increase the trazodone to 150 milligrams nightly. And at this point, as there's a plan in place for the insomnia, the management now turns to address some of the other symptoms that he's reporting as well. One of the main symptoms that the patient is reporting at this point is his itching. Now, pruritus and chronic kidney disease is common. It occurs in around 20 to 40 percent of patients, and it can occur both in patients who have renal failure who are not on dialysis, and it can be a significant issue for patients with renal failure who are on dialysis as well. It tends to be highly variable in presentation in terms of both the location and the severity. It may most frequently occurs on patients' backs, but it can occur on the itching can be prominent on the extremities as well. In terms of the etiology, there's probably multiple mechanisms. There may be some dermatologic pathophysiology. There may be immunologic or neurologic contributing factors as well. And what's important to note about the pruritus is that it's really associated with poor quality of life as well as depression. So it's important really to screen and to treat for it aggressively. So there are several different treatments that one can consider for itchiness associated with kidney disease. Um, the first line treatment and the least invasive and with the least side effects would be a topical treatment, um, an emollient typically with a high water content which can be used to treat the drying of the skin. Um, if this is not effective, one can engage in a systemic pharmacotherapy or consider some other non-pharmacologic therapies as well. In terms of systemic therapies for itching and chronic kidney disease, um, there have been positive clinical trials of gabapentin and pregabalin. Um, they can be effective and, and can manage itching and often these can be harnessed for other symptoms as well. For example, if someone has a, neuropathic pain at the same time and itching. This would be a medication that one could choose to treat both of these things at the same time. 
these medications do require a dose adjustment in renal failure, though, so we need to be aware of that. There is conflicting data on the use of opiate antagonists for itching and renal failure, for example, naltrexone. There also have been some small trials which have suggested that there could be some benefit from low-dose doxepin, sertraline, or gamma-linoleic acid, which is evening primrose oil. There are also some ongoing medications, kappa opiate antagonists, which are, excuse me, agonists, which are currently in development. Now, one of often, for other types of itching, the first-line treatment is frequently an antihistamine. However, in pruritus associated with chronic kidney disease, they're generally more ineffective and would not be our first-line intervention in this case. In terms of non-pharmacologic therapies, there's conflicting data, but interventions that can and could be considered would be phototherapy, acupuncture, as well as cognitive behavioral therapies or a combination thereof. So the first step in this patient's care is that he's instructed to use a moisturizing emollient on his arms and legs twice daily while he explores the higher dose of trazodone for management of the insomnia and depression. So he's using both interventions together at this point. Now the other symptom that the patient mentioned was restlessness. So when someone says restlessness and insomnia in something like chronic kidney disease, one of the things that we want to think about and ask about is whether this could be resulting from a restless leg syndrome. Now restless leg syndrome is prevalent in around 12 to 25 percent of dialysis patients. It can also occur in patients who are, have renal failure who are not on dialysis. And it is clinically defined by the experience of these uncomfortable paresthesias associated typically in the legs, which are relieved by movement. And there's a strong urge to move the extremities to relieve these sensations. Typically, um, these tend to be worse in the evening. They tend to occur when someone is lying in bed, when they're trying to rest or unwind, or while they're sitting down and trying to relax. And because of this, the timing of it, they can have a significant impact just in terms of general discomfort, but they are highly disruptive both to the quality and the quantity of someone's sleep. So they are also very closely linked with insomnia in chronic kidney disease. And there, it's also associated with a poor quality of life. So treatment of restless leg syndrome in chronic kidney disease um, is available, but is somewhat limited by the paucity of studies that have been done. There is evidence that supports the use of dopamine agonists. Um, and these would be medications such as ropinerol, pramiprexol, ritigotine, or bromocryptine. Um, these are medications that we most typically associate with Parkinson's disease, which is also another risk factor for restless leg syndrome. But certainly one can have uh, restless leg syndrome without Parkinson's disease, and one can benefit for, from re for treating restless leg syndrome from these medications. One has to be aware of these side effects of them. They can cause sleepiness. They can cause some hypotension. Um, they can cause mental status changes, and rarely, in some cases, they can cause compulsive behaviors such as uh, gambling or compulsive shopping. So it's something to be aware about if you prescribe one of these medications for whatever cause. Um, there is also support for the gabapentinoids, like gabapentin and pregabalin, which can also help with restless leg syndrome. And again, you might want to 
consider what other type of side effects the person or symptoms the person has and select a medication that would have the most benefit for a variety of symptoms. When you're prescribing one of these gabapentinoids, one has to think about lightheadedness or dizziness and sometimes peripheral edema as some of the common side effects. There is some evidence, although limited, for the use of opiates um, for use in restless leg syndrome and chronic kidney disease. So at this point, um, the patient reports that the trazodone was helping him sleep. And whether it's due to better sleep or to the drug, his mood is actually better at this point. So we've had some positive improvement. And however, the itching and the restlessness continue to be distressing symptoms. So given this, which of the following drugs would be a reasonable choice as a next trial? Would it be gabapentin because of evidence of efficacy in both itching and restless leg syndrome? Would it be naltrexone because of proven benefit for itching? Or would it be oxycodone because of proven benefit for restless leg syndrome? Or could it be a combination of A and B or A and C? So the answer that we are looking for in this case would be gabapentin uh, because, again, there is evidence for both pruritus and restless leg syndrome. So as I, we talked about before, it's helpful to try to select a medication that can treat more than one symptom to minimize your polypharmacy. Uh, now, trexone um, would not be helpful with the restless leg syndrome and oxycodone, although there is some limited evidence that might help with restless leg syndrome, is not going to help with the itching, and in some cases could actually make the itching worse. So we would want to avoid that. So the trazodone is continued at the current dose. His gabapentin is slowly increased at a dose of 200 milligrams twice a day. And at this point, the patient reports itching and restlessness have improved. And at this point, his GFR is stable between 20 and 30. For the next 20 months, he's relatively stable, and he returns to visit his PCP every three months, and his treatments were adjusted in response to his symptoms. However, he then presents after a period with an upper respiratory infection associated with fever and confusion, and he's admitted to the hospital and treated with an antibiotic. At this point, his GFR is rechecked. Um, in the hospital, it was 20. He recovers from the infection but remains confused and more toxic. And one month later, his labs are repeated, and his GFR is now noted to be 15. At this point, he agrees to dialysis, and this is started. And going forward, the nephrologist and his primary care physician share management of the palliative care throughout the course of his disease. So I will now give you a moment to think of any questions uh, that you might have. Okay, so we have um, one question here. How do you dose gabapentin in renal failure? Well, the way that you dose gabapentin and, and uh, pregabalin as well, which are similar medications, um, is really based on the creatinine clearance. And there are specific charts that you can look up which will describe, for example, both the dosing and the frequency of um, these medications based on various strata of the creatinine clearance. So for example, it would be one dose and one frequency. For example, if someone has a creatinine clearance of uh, 15 or below, um, and then a different dose and um, dosing frequency, for example, if someone has a creatinine clearance of uh, 15 to 30. So when you are dosing these medications uh, in the context of renal failure, it's useful to look up one of these charts and select your dose and your frequency accordingly. 
So that's all the time that we have for questions right now. Thank you very much for attending our webinar. Before we go, I would like to uh, announce our next webinar, and this will be Anxiety Disorders in the Seriously Ill by Dr. Alessandra Strada um, of uh, Integrative Medicine and Bereavement Specialist at MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care, and this will occur on Wednesday, December 28, uh, 2016 at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please make sure to complete your evaluations to help us in uh, planning future webinars. Thank you very much.